Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com. And remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland, and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. Join us for a journey as we go back to the great civilizations of the past. Who were the people? What were they like? How did they begin and how did they end? Let's find out on episode 38, 805 to 800 BC. Previously on The Fan of History, the Neo-Assyrian Empire's western territories, Syria, have been neglected for two, 22 years. To the north of the empire, the power of Urartu is ever-increasing. Dan, what do we have going on now? We have plenty going on. We are going to make the run to the end of the 9th century BC. And we will also get some news from Europe. News the from Europe? backwater of the world. <laughs> no one knows anything about Europe in this time. What's going on? I know something about Europe at this Maybe. time. And Great. I will tell you at the end of the episode. <laughs> All right. Stay tuned, folks. <laughs> So, first we check in. Who is king of Assyria? And it's still Adad-Nirari III, the sixth king of the empire. Assyria is the strongest state in the Near East, with Urartu to the north as a close second. And it, it was in 827 BC that the last Assyrian army went west to kick around the states of the Mediterranean coast and Syria and Lebanon. Mm -hmm. So now it's time to go west. And in 805 BC, Adad-Nirari III brings the royal Assyrian army to the west. This happens more than one time in the years coming, and the exact number of campaigns and dates are not well known or understood. But 
there is a time of campaigning for 10 years. So from 805 to 796 BC, there uh, are these Western campaigns. And it is sort of the last hurrah of the early Neo-Assyrian Empire. This is the last of the great kings, uh, or not even great. It's the last of any decent king. Oh, no. <laughs> and uh, it's the last victories as well. Ouch. But before we go west with Adonir III, we have to talk about the new powerful player in Assyria. Earlier, it has been mainly the king. We had this brief episode with Diane Asher, the field marshal, under Shalmaneser III. But here comes a guy who is such an interesting fellow. He is Shamshi Ilu. He is a noble from the Bit Adini tribe of Arameans. The Bit Adini tribe fought against, we, we mentioned them a lot of times. Oh, yeah. They fought against Ashurnasipal II. They were massacred by him. They fought against his father. They were, uh, his son, Shalmaneser III. They were conquered by Shalmaneser III. And their capital of Til, or their important city at least, of Tilbarsit, mm -hmm. was made into Kar Shalmaneser. Castle Shalmaneser, Fort Shalmaneser, <laughs> Festung Shalmaneser. <laughs> and this has been the main Assyrian military position towards the west. The campaigns to the west goes from Kar Shalmaneser. And in the time that has gone by since Shalmaneser III, the powerful noble families of the Bitadini tribe have been integrated into the Assyrian structure. Remember, the Assyrians are not racists they will beat up everyone and make them an Assyrian. <laughs> so they, they, their attitude to immigration is like, we'll take you and make you Assyrians. <laughs> it's, um, right. They are very offensive, <laughs> very right. aggressive immigration policy. <laughs> Whether you they like it or not. They want people to immigrate. And the family of Shamshi Ilu has really used this to their benefit. So it's probable that Shamshi Ilu was educated at the Assyrian royal court. Hmm. And he has now risen to the rank of field marshal in the army of Dabnirari III. He is the second in command of the royal army. And this shows how far competent non-Assyrians can rise in the Assyrian Empire. And there will be tons of examples of this during the rest of the Assyrian Empire that you, you really judged by your competence, in a sense. So if you play along with the Assyrians, you can become a powerful Assyrian. Wow. And this is probably the rise to power of Shamshi'ilu, because Shamshi'ilu will be around for such a long time, and soon he will be more important than the king himself. But this, it is debated if this happens during the reign of Adad Nirari III, but I don't think it does. I think he is the second in command, and that his relationship with Adad Nirari III is the same relationship Diane Usher and Chalmaneser III had. But remember, that was also debated if Diane Usher actually controlled the empire. Okay. But Shamshi Ilu will control the empire with later kings. And he will be around for many, many kings. <laughs> so, 
So, but I don't think Adad Mirror III was a king that Shamshi'ilu could dominate. Shamshi'ilu must be youngish, at least at this time. Right. Because he, he's around for such a long time. <laughs> uh, and the, the anti-Assyrian movement in the West then, they, they, the Assyrians have been gone for such a long time. But the Syrian states, they know that the Assyrians will be back. So they need to organize. And I, I don't think this invasion of Adarnior III was unexpected at all. And the city-state of Arpad has taken the lead. Arpad has rebelled before, and Arpad will rebel again. And around Arpad, the states of Syria gather to resist. They like their freedom, and they will uh, try to retain it. Our part is in northern Syria. It's rather close to Karkar, the site of the great battle in 853 BC. And our part is also, it's also very motivated to take the lead in Assyrian resistance because it's right in the path that the Assyrian army sort of always takes. Right. Uh, remember, Shalmaneser III actually plundered our part before the Battle of Karkar. So they know what's coming. Right. And they will try to resist. It is likely that Aram Damascus is supporting Arpad in this. Uh, Aram Damascus is the most powerful of the Western states. But a lot of states in the West, they don't join. They think, okay, the Assyrians will be back. My dad told me about the Assyrians. Right. <laughs> or I was even there when they were here last time. <laughs> So we are not going to do anything. And that's the attitude of the Phoenicians. They're like, uh oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> yes, let's just sell stuff to the Assyrians and be their friends. Right. It's too much of a hassle. <laughs> yes. And also Hamath uh, very clearly takes a stand on, for the Assyrians. See, it is a bit unclear of who was allied with Arpad in this, and afterwards everybody will say, oh, Arpad, those crazy bastards, we, we were never with them, never, oh no, we never supported this. Oh, right. They, they, total deniability is what they're going yes. for. Yes. Oh, crazy Arpadians. <laughs> those scamps. <laughs> and now we actually have the word, the words of Adad Nirari III himself. So we can ask the great king of Assyria what happened with this rebellion. Alright, let's see Adad Nirari. Let's see. let's see if I can channel the spirit of Adad Nirari. Please do. <laughs> Adad Nirari III, strong king, king of the universe, king of Assyria. Son of Samsi Adad, King of the Universe, King of Assyria, Sons of Salmanu Asurad, Shamanasur III, King of the Four Quarters, I mustered my chariotry, troops, and armed forces, and gave the order to march to the land of Hatti. I crossed the Euphrates in flood. I went down to the city of Bakirahubanu. Atar Sunki, son of Abirami, together with eight kings of Hatti, who had rebelled and trusted in their strength, the awesome radiance of the god Ashur, my lord, overwhelmed them. In just one year, I subdued the land of Hatti to its full extent. Towards the sea of the west, I marched. 
I erected my lordly image. So, total Assyrian victory. And it's interesting here to see that the Assyrians still speak of the land of Hatti. Because these are still the Neo-Hittites merging with Arameans. And they still believe that they are the Hittite Empire. (laughs) Or they live in the style of the Hittite Empire. Which has now been gone for 400 years. (laughs) Wow. And the Assyrians still think this as well. Uh, Two years ago, I did this episode for our YouTube channel. And at that time... There was a stele of Adalnirar III, a stone monument for sale at the Bonham's auction house. And it was it included this text and other text we'll talk about. And that stone had survived for 3,000 years, pretty much. It was on sale at Bonham's for 800,000 pounds. That's amazing. Uh, and we'll we'll read uh, more from the stone from that monument. I don't know what happened to it, but I expect that it was bought. And I hope it's in a museum so people can see it. Right. But after the victory, Adarnirari III visits Arvad. That's uh, the biggest island of Lebanon. So I'll give it again to Adarnirari III. In the city of Arvad. In the midst of the sea, I ascended Mount Lebanon. I cut strong logs of cedar. At that time, I replaced those cedars from Mount Lebanon in the gate of the temple of the god Salmanu. My lord, the old temple which Salmanu Asarad, Shamanesar I, my ancestor had built, became dilapidated, and I, in the stroke of inspiration, built his temple from its foundations to its parapets. I placed the cedar roof beams of Mount Lebanon to top. When this temple becomes old and dilapidated, my future prince, renovate its dilapidated parts and return the inscription to its place. This is a fairly interesting course. Uh, first of all, the Mount Lebanon is, of course, not on the island of Arvab. And that was not what he said, because this started in... The the text before it was lost. He finds on the island of Arvad a temple built by Shalmaneser I. And Shalmaneser I ruled Assyria before we started this podcast. So, (laughs) uh, yeah, of course he did, but... (laughs) Right, way before. (laughs) He is a powerful king of the Middle Assyrian Empire, the Second Assyrian Empire. The Neo-Assyrian Empire is the Third Assyrian Empire. And... uh, he built a temple on the island of Arvad, and now Adad-Nirar III restores the, this ancient temple. It's 300 years old or thereabout. And he even writes down his hope that when the next Assyrian king comes here, he will check on the temple and restore it and give honor to Adad-Nirar III. And this shows very much how far ahead and behind them the Assyrians are thinking because the Assyrian kingdom in itself is over a thousand years old at this point. And even the line of kings is a thousand years old. So uh, the Assyrians are really living in the past and preparing for a future which they don't think will be much different than the past has been. And Adad-Nirad III would be sad to know that <laughs> nobody will understand where this temple came from in 200 years. 
Wow. Uh, we have an, another interesting character from uh, Assyria here. It's Nergal Eres, the governor of Rasappa, one of the heartland provinces of the Assyrian Empire. And he is writing on this stele. Um, he writes 25 lines on the king's stele. It, uh, it's a lot of propaganda for this guy, Nergal Eres. He presents a golden sword to Adad Nirari III. And his language is very lofty. And it's an exercise in ancient ass-kissing. He's like, <laughs> oh, the, the king is so great. And I, too, am great. Wow. Uh, Arvad, of course, is a Phoenician state. And it has been pretty pro-Assyrian. They had this small slip-up when they were on the wrong side in the Battle of Karkar in 853 BC. But they are now all pro-Assyrian. <laughs> They're like, oh, you Assyrians are so great. Well, uh, Hamath. Came around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hamath. They were also on the Assyrian side and they, like, they are, want to conquer Arpad now that the Assyrians have crushed Arpad. But Adad Nirari III makes a peace treaty between Arpad and Hamath. And we have this peace treaty. Wow. And, uh, Hamath then is, of course, enjoying the favor of being a loyal vassal to Assyria and really showcasing their loyalty here. Uh, but there still remains Aram Damascus, and it wasn't very clear if they were involved in this Arpad rebellion or not. And if they were, they managed to hide it from the Assyrians. So what does Aram Damascus do? The Assyrians are back in the region, and Arpad has been crushed. Aram Damascus might be next on the list. And they are the most powerful state in the area. What do you think they do? I think they're going to find someone to pick on. <laughs> yeah, the, the classic answer to that question is whenever you don't know what Aram Damascus is doing, they are fighting Israel. <laughs> right. So their attitude is mainly, oh, the Assyrians are back. Well, that must be a cue for us to attack Israel. <laughs> Again. Yes. Israel is ruled by Jehoahaz, and Damascus is ruled by Hassel still. But Damascus has the upper hand now. It seems that the Aaron Damascus goes all in and just forgets about the Assyrian royal army. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at bluenile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Close to their border in the other direction. And there is a great raid of Hassel. He will now try to seize control of all the southern trade routes, uh, the trade routes with the Arabs and the trade routes to Babylon through the desert. So Edom and Moab, two mini kingdoms around in this area, they are probably vassals. But Hassel's army goes even south of Israel into uh, the area of the Philistines. And they sacked the Philistine city of Gath on the coast of the Mediterranean. And we can find several destruction layers in Israel and in the area of the Philistines from this time. So Hassel really kicks every small neighbor's butt. (laughs) Wow. And we don't know what the Assyrian reaction is because they must know that this is happening and that this is a golden opportunity to take down Damascus. Right. And they have they're, no love. No love lost for Damascus. Split. split. Mm-hmm. But uh, so the Isra- Israelites, all they can do is pray for a savior. They're like, please, Lord, bring us someone who can beat Damascus. <laughs> Because if Aram Damascus wasn't around and they didn't have this strong, violent king, Israel would be the most powerful kingdom in the area. So we know what Adad Nirari III does in 802 BC. He campaigns to the sea. And that's what we know. So, <laughs> so which sea? Right. Aren't there a few? <laughs> yeah, the the Assyrian concept of a sea is they, they don't know geography that well. So they're like, oh, huge body of water must be a sea. So they right. think Lake Van in Armenia or in Turkey today is a sea. They think the Mediterranean is a sea, of course. Me- me- the Mediterranean is the great green. And there's also the Persian Gulf. We don't know which sea they camp into. It might have been the Baltic. No, it probably wasn't the Baltic. <laughs> But we have no idea where Adad Nirari III is and who is fighting. But he is campaigning to the sea. Well, or maybe that was just something they wrote to sound cool. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> right. Like, uh, what do we do? They just went and just chilled out for a while and came back and said, Oh, yeah, we went to the sea. Nothing was there. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, the Assyrians would never have the capacity to campaign to the Baltic. But this would be the hour to do a campaign to the Baltic Sea because things are happening in Europe that will eventually then change the world. So, so first, let's... Sorry? Oh, no, I was going to say, so what's going on over there now? <laughs> yeah. we First, check in with what we know since earlier. We know the Villanovans are in Italy and they will eventually become the Etruscans. We know that Chalcis and Eritrea 
are the strongest cities in Greece on the island of Euboea. They have the colony of Almina in Syria. Several early city-states have rose into power in uh, Greece, like Sparta, Knossos, Athens, Miletus, and Argos. In Corinth, we have the first shrines, an organized religion. But another thing is happening in Europe at about this time. And now we're not talking about the Mediterranean coast, where everything has happened so far. But we have the rise of the Hallstatt culture. So there's a debate right now going, um, challenging this old picture of early European history. Uh, Hallstatt, the Hallstatt culture is named from its type site, like old cultures known only from archaeology are. So there's a, a, a town called Hallstatt or a place called Hallstatt close to Salzburg in Austria, Austria, where there are salt mines. And around this salt mines, a culture arises from out of the Urnfield culture, which we talk about. This is an early Iron Age culture, and it's pro-Celtic. It's before the Celts, but it seems that all the Celts did not come from the Hallstatt culture. But this will influence the Celts quite a bit when they arrive, or when, when you can start talking about the Celts. But we have very distinctive goods from the Hallstatt culture. It spreads out from Hallstatt, okay. or from, from the area of Salzburg, pretty quickly. So there's a, a, a leap in, uh, in civilization, you can say, but it's not civilization in the sense that they recorded history because they had no writing. And it's, it's very early to talk about this in this episode, but this is the earliest traces of the Hallstatt culture. And Hallstatt will, will be part of forming early Europe. And we'll talk more about the early European cultures when they appear, but there's no events we can report from Hallstatt, uh, of course. So I'm sure a lot of interesting stuff is happening there that we have no idea about. But we can see the archaeological traces that something important happened around this time in Austria. That's very interesting. I, I just realized Salzburg, salt mines... Yep. How very, how very clever. <laughs> Castle Salt. Castle Salt. There you go. So once again, I, I like to reflect on how interesting it is that we know so much about the Assyrians. That's why we talk about the Assyrians so much. Not, not only because they were a powerful culture and they're interesting in their conquest and stuff, but they have documented more than anyone else from this period. So for 801 BC, we go back to Adad-Nirari III, and he is attacking somebody again, like his religious duty is. Exactly. And he attacks Kubushkia. What is Kubushkia? <laughs> like, what is Kubushkia? I've never heard of this one. This is a, a small state. Like okay. the, the, there seems to be an endless supply of small states, not only north of Urartu, like I said in the last episode, but also um, yeah, everywhere <laughs> where the big kingdoms don't control, there are small states. And Kubushka is right between Assyria and Urartu. That's not a good place to be. Oh, gosh. 
Yeah, and in the squeeze zone. This campaign may have been led by Shamshi Ilu, because Shamshi Ilu will show time and time again that he feels very strongly about protecting the old Bitadini territory against Urartu. Because the Bitadini territory around Kar Shalmaneser, now a Syrian territory then, is right next to the mountains in the north. And Urartu threatened this area. So we will see in the decisions of Shamshi Ilu, the field marshal, he will have this hatred for Urartu and a desire to defend his hometown. So in a sense, he will grow into an Aramean warlord. We have seen so many small Aramean warlords. It's like the natural state of the Arameans, lead your war tribe. But this guy has the royal Assyrian army. But he's still sometimes behaving like an Aramean warlord. Hmm. Wonder how that works out for him. If you Google 800 BC, you will find an, a very arbitrary event that uh, th this might be the one most known thing about 800 BC. Because it is the official end, we have decided, <laughs> of the Greek Dark Age. Okay. So Greece now enters a new period known as the Archaic, Archaic Period. So it's not ancient Greece yet, it's Archaic, Archaic Greece. Archaic Greece, okay. Yes, and it lasts from 800 to 480 BC. And of course, in 480 BC, ancient Greece begins with all the classical stuff. Right. But stuff stuff we will you learn see. about in school. <laughs> yes. And we will see why this, uh, this arbitrary name change happens. Because the 8th century BC will be entirely different from the 9th century BC for the Greeks. The 8th century BC will really be the rise of the Greeks. And we, we've seen the beginning of this in our Spartan episodes and in the, in the colonization of Almina in 825 BC. So it is beginning already in the 9th century, but it will take off in, in the 8th century BC. And we will have this fantastic colonization of the whole Mediterranean, pretty much. And it will be like an explosion in this this ancient world where things happened very slowly. The Greeks are coming from nowhere, coming from 400 years of Dark Age, and they are just sweeping the Mediterranean. And it, it will be amazing. We will dedicate several episodes to this procedure in the next century. Excellent. Alright, well... I guess that brings us to the end of the episode. And the century. And the century. Can you believe it? We're already through the 800s. Yeah, wow. we have talked about 200 years now. That's, that's a lot of talking we've done. <laughs> and we will see in the next episode that this will become a lot more complicated now. The 9th century BC was... We had a lot more information than we have for the 10th century BC. Remember, we could cover a decade in one episode easily in the 10th century BC. Right. Now we'll have to go to four episodes sometimes to cover a decade for wow. the 8th century BC. 
and this this process just continues. So the sixth century BC, we could do yeah several hundred episodes about. But we are, we are going to proceed as of right now. We are going to proceed to 701 BC and the destruction of Sennacherib. And then we will really need help on our Patreon to go further. So patreon.com slash history if you like this. Please exactly. contribute a uh, dollar. It helps us. Um, also, we are on YouTube. Uh, YouTube slash history. And we are on Facebook slash fan of history, Twitter at the fan of history. If you want to be um, aware of our updates, uh, that is where Dan puts out all the fan of history updates. Also, if you want to follow Dan at Dan Horning, and if you would like to follow me, I'm at Cerulean says hi. These will be in the show notes. <laughs> Also, the website is thefanofhistory.wordpress.com. And again, please like, subscribe, share, give us reviews on iTunes. And soon, I bet by the time this comes out, it'll be on Google Play. Yes. So. Uh, uh -huh. I'd like to talk a little more about my Twitter. <laughs> oh, sure, sure. Go for it. It's uh, at Dan Horning, them. Yes. And this is a Twitter I use a lot, and I use it for all my projects. I do five podcasts, and I think I have ten YouTube channels or something, so not everything might be of interest there, but if you want to reach me and tweet to me about Fan of History, please tweet to me personally, because the Fan of History Twitter account is mainly just automatic updates when anything is uploaded on the YouTube channel. So uh, please follow me at Dan Horning. And don't mind the Swedish stuff. Two of the podcasts <laughs> are in Swedish. So there will be some Swedish stuff. It's mostly about a mysterious murder 30 years ago. <laughs> I follow him. I think it's worthwhile. And there will, of course, be a lot of Magic the Gathering stuff as well. Oh, we, do, we do a lot of that. That is, that is definitely a warning that needs to be heeded. Yes. You can listen to me and Brennan do a podcast about magic. Uh, about magic, at uh, it's called the Magic Gathering Strat Show. Yes, we've been doing that. Uh, we just did episode fifty-seven, and before that, it was called the Standard Popper Show, which we did almost forty episodes of. Yeah, so we are. We have another guy on that show as well. He's Sam. Sam. Yep. Uh, he's there for color. <laughs> he's he's a colorful character <laughs> we should talk about what we are doing next time oh okay on what episode, are we episode 39 we will take a world tour we did this at the beginning uh, in 900 BC and we'll now take a world tour and look at what's which civilizations are where in the world in 800 BC and this episode 39 will clearly show how much we know now compared to 900 BC. So I think it will be twice as long as the 900 BC episode. But we will tour the world uh, in 800 BC and check out everything. And there are a lot of places that we don't talk about because there is no known there are no known events from those places. We will now mention all of the civilizations we know about. Right. And I have visited some ruins. Give a little insight into that. Yeah, more on the Olmecs of Mexico. Yeah. 
it's closer to me. So uh, <laughs> I have been through several ruins in that area. I find it extremely fascinating. Um, just, just you know, when you can actually kind of reach and touch something that someone from that age has worked on and it's still standing and it's still viable. It's, I find it amazing. Yeah, it's, it's hard to convey the Olme culture in the podcast because we don't, we can't, they have writing, but we can't read it. So we don't know a lot in, but it's very visual. It's very artistic. It's big pyramids and stuff. Yep. Giant heads. And it's the origin of all things in Mexico. It's like the, uh, the Aztecs and the Mayans. Yep. It's, it's fascinating. All right. Well, I guess that's going to be it for this week. So I am Brennan. And I'm Dan. Thank you for listening. <laughs> this has been The Fan of History. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash fanofhistory. Just a dollar an episode would help us out. Thanks, and see you next time. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs>